This week's episode is presented by 1895 Films and our content partners, Peter Hamilton's Documentary Business, a newsletter for documentary professionals, and Sunny Side of the Dock, the international marketplace for documentary and narrative experiences, coming to La Rochelle, France in June 2022. On a December Saturday in 1917, Several residents of Fort Wayne, Indiana, noticed a man slinking through the streets and alleys of the city, methodically sketching every building. The United States had just entered World War I earlier in the year. This man was obviously some sort of spy. It's like, what's this person doing out here making copious notes about our neighborhood? That's David Dice, staff cartographer in the geography department at Cal State Northridge. I imagine you wouldn't get very far with that today. As it turns out, you couldn't get very far with it in 1917 either. Someone alerted the Fort Wayne Police Department, who found the man and brought him to the mayor for some reason. The mayor demanded an explanation. The man's name was J.A. Phillips, and he was not a spy. He was an employee of the Sanborn Map Company, and he was looking for things that catch fire. I'm Tobias Black, and this is Artifactual from 1895 Films. I first came across the Sanborn map while working on a documentary about a carpenter in the Midwest. I'd been hoping to find a map of the small town the guy lived in, and a Sanborn map popped up in my search. But when I looked closer, I realized that the map not only showed the street the carpenter lived and worked on, it identified the carpenter shop itself. That level of detail means one of two things, obsession or money. In this case, it might have been a little of both. The Sanborn Map Company did work that was very boring and very lucrative. They made maps for insurance companies. The company had been founded by a man named D.A. Sanborn back in 1867. The United States was expanding rapidly in the wake of the Civil War. Houses and buildings were being crammed together in cities, and most of them were made out of wood. And wood, as you may know, has a tendency to catch fire. So American cities were on fire all the time. There was the Great Portland Fire of 1866, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, the Great Boston Fire of 1872, then another Chicago Fire in 1874, 1889 saw blazes in Seattle, Spokane, Ellensburg, and Bakersfield. If you were living in an American city in the late 19th century, chances are it was on fire. People were looking for a way to protect themselves from all that destruction, and they turned to one industry, insurance. You could see why people were interested in getting fire insurance. And insurance companies needed a way to assess how risky insuring a particular building might be. In other words, how likely was it that your building was going to catch fire? Daniel Sanborn, Daniel Alfred Sanborn, sort of stepped in and started creating materials to meet the needs of this industry. Those needs included maps, which have come to be known as Sanborn maps. I wanted to see some of these maps for myself. The biggest collection is at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. But the second biggest is with David Dice at Cal State Northridge just a 20-minute drive away from where I live in L.A. The university's collection of Sanborn maps is housed in Sierra Hall. Sierra Hall is a grim three-story concrete building with long fluorescent lit hallways. 
If you imagine a generic institutional structure built in the 1960s, this is it. The door to room 189 looks like any other classroom door, but inside is something totally different. Oh my God, the, the smell in this room is just glorious, right? Because you walk in and there's a certain aroma <laughs> that's emanating from these things. And it's like archive, right? It's like the, the smell of history. That smell comes from the hundreds of leather-bound atlases that line every wall. Everything uh, are on individual shelves going from floor to ceiling, and they're organized by um, state and then by city. So obviously we start with Phoenix, Arizona, and I think we end up with Vancouver or Washington or something like that in the next room. Just sort of staring at all the volumes floor to ceiling lined up on individual shelves sort of is the impressive factor as you walk into the room. They designed it with the uh, separate air filtration system. That's why we hear the um, air circulation going at the moment to try to keep it uh, as dust-free as possible. And inside each one of these atlases are page after page of maps. And the maps have very specific information in them. Information that would be useful to an insurance company trying to figure out just how flammable your building was. So things like what the building was made of uh, was important. Where are the locations of the doors and windows? Uh, how many stories? What was going on inside the building? Was it a bakery or was it a house? Other sorts of things like what the roof uh, material was made out of, where the fire hydrants were located, what the uh, situation of the local fire department was. All of that information was gathered by people like J.A. Phillips, the guy everyone in Fort Wayne, Indiana thought was a spy. They'd go out with their pad and they'd, you know, do their survey. My name is Dr. Paulette Hazier. I'm the chief of the geography and map division at the Library of Congress. It's, it's labor intensive, literally going to the physical areas and actually, um, to be honest, having conversations and drawing these things. You'd say, oh, well, I see smoke coming out of that building. <laughs> They're smelting in a wooden structure. So the insurance company could say, you've got smelting, you're smelting ore on your, your site and it's made of wood, we're charging you this premium. J.A. Phillips was just one of hundreds of surveyors, sometimes called trotters or striders, that the Sanborn Map Company sent out across North America. They would drop into a city, set up temporary offices, and carefully note the size, shape, and materials of every structure, down to the last outhouse or detached garage. And J.A. Phillips's run-in with the suspicious residents of Fort Wayne may have been dramatic, but it wasn't unique. You know, sometimes there's actually uh, notations inside these volumes that somebody wasn't able to get access to a location, right? Or they were chased off, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Once they got what they needed and talked themselves out of any sticky situations, Phillips and the other trotters, you better believe I'm gonna call them trotters if I have the option, Anyway, they'd bring their notes and drawings back to company headquarters and hand them off to the drafters to make the actual maps. You marvel at the analog um, design of these things uh, and the symbology and the accuracy because you can you know, line these up with like modern imagery. If, if the buildings on these are still in existence, it's very possible 
to line these up in the digital environment and see how unbelievably accurate they are. But accuracy wasn't enough. You could have wonderful data and fantastic analysis, but if the map that you produce looks like crap or nobody wants to look at it, then you could argue that your message isn't being delivered. So you sort of need to take that final step to make something presentable. That task fell to the drafters back at the Sanborn offices. You had a team of basically drafters that were uh, drawing the skeletal versions of these maps, a black and white only version, quote unquote, of the map, and then color was applied to it. And I believe they washed color onto these the same way that you would sort of silkscreen color onto a shirt. The color indicates the material that the building was constructed out of. So the color needs to be very light, pastel uh, in nature in order to have uh, the black type um, sit on top of it. So it's not going to be a solid pink. It's going to be a very light pink, almost like a watercolor effect. Pink uh, refers to brick, I believe. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, yellow is wood frame. And the brown, I think, is adobe. There's also the uh, incredible artwork on the title pages of these things, which I'm sure you've seen in the past. I mean, the title pages were in and of themselves sort of like these magnificent art deco, you know, uh, expressions of uh, excess, <laughs> graphic excess, uh, which are beautiful. It's kind of like stained glass making or, you know, woodblock printing, you know, uh, very much an artisan um, uh, thing. The bottom line is that these maps are beautiful, and they're stuffed with information. And the Sanborn Map Company didn't just map a city once. They came back over and over again, over the course of decades. And they faithfully recorded what they saw, without fully grasping the significance of the changes they were documenting. When they went out and did these surveys, you know, a lot of buildings have um, what I call social information. So what was actually going on inside that building? Was it a gambling hall? Was it a laundromat? Was it a gas station? Here's Paulette Hazier again. It became the, 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 a, a whole kind of look at the migration of families, the changing of areas, the changing of businesses in areas, the changing demographic, geographic nature of areas, the growth or the recession of cities or, or towns. Literally was a snapshot in time. And it, it just kind of blossomed into something that became more than what that original item was intended to be. In Fort Wayne, for example, the Sanborn Company was there in 1902, and then came back to do a 1918 edition. It was in the course of preparing that 1918 map that J.A. Phillips was arrested. And if you compare the 1902 map to J.A. Phillips's 1918 one, you can see a synagogue morph into an office building. You can see a vacant lot become a public library. The cigar factory is gone, but a movie house has popped up next door. The Sanborn Map Company went through this same process for thousands and thousands of cities. It's basically 12,000 cities and towns in U.S., Canada, and Mexico. When you look at the full thing, you're looking at about somewhere in the, the neighborhood of about 50,000 atlases. But if you start looking at the amount of sheets of the maps that are included in the atlases, you're now looking at uh, somewhere around the approximation of about a million sheets. And those are just the ones that have survived. And all those maps are basically hand-drawn. It's incredibly labor-intensive. And eventually someone was going to disrupt this very profitable but very inefficient industry. It took over a hundred years from when D.A. Sanborn started his company in the aftermath of the Civil War 
But that moment eventually came in the late 1970s. We're talking about the late 70s. We're now seeing almost the cusp of the computer digital age where, where you don't physically have to be there anymore. The Sanborn Company published its last update in 1977. And now they had this enormous library of outdated maps that nobody seemed to want anymore. Nobody except a few lonely cartographers. The story about how these came here is actually a little bit interesting as well. So the Sanborn Map Company was out of New York City, but they had field offices uh, in various locations. And in, I want to say the early or mid-70s, um, the chair of the department caught wind that the San Francisco field office was closing and that they were getting rid of these volumes and, and were going to literally toss them out. So he tasked uh, a couple of newly hired faculty and some grad students, rented bands, went up to the Bay Area and fetched these things and brought them back down here. And once these maps were rescued from destruction, they slowly began to take on a new life. A lot of genealogists would use Sanborn maps because what they would want to do is they would want to look at the map of a certain area and not only say did they want to know where their family home was, but they also wanted to know who was in the neighborhood or who was around or what was around. You know, I heard great grandma say there was always a little corner store. You know, I didn't believe her, but you know, I got a Sanborn and she's right, there was a corner store. But this was still a very niche thing. You had to be really dedicated to proving your grandmother wrong about that corner store to go all the way into one of these archives, pull one of these huge atlases off the shelf, and flick through until you found the right street. But when the Sanborn maps were quietly posted online, interest in them exploded. When we get our, our reports on our, you know, our monthly activity online, these are the highest used materials in our collection, by far. And Dr. Hazier thinks she knows why the maps have become so popular. Because they're so personal. A year or two ago, I was asked to go back to the University of Texas at Arlington to do a presentation for the students. So just to give people a little bit of a sense of where I came from, because I didn't grow up in Texas, I grew up in Chicago, I actually went back and found the Sanborn map from um, right around, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than when my parents moved into the neighborhood in Chicago. And it was just supposed to be a picture on the slide just to show people, here, here's me in Chicago. I probably spent maybe an hour or so staring at it because I knew what the neighborhood looked like when I grew up there, right? I didn't know what the neighborhood looked in 1929. So I'm looking at streets and how street names are different or streets don't go all the way through or there's less houses. And it, it's very personal. When I look at the Sanborn map from 1890 of the street I grew up on in New York City, I can see that my building had not yet been built. Neither had the synagogue or the post office. What is there is a stop on the Manhattan Railway, an elevated train I had never heard of before, that ran down Columbus Avenue, just half a block away from where I grew up. I try to imagine my walk to middle school, which took me down Columbus, with the train rumbling by overhead. If I jump ahead to the map from 1951, the neighborhood I recognize, the one I grew up in, suddenly appears. There's my building, number 150, halfway down the block on the left. The map notes that it's nine stories tall, we were on the fifth, and that it's constructed out of cinder block and steel. I can see the courtyard that the window of my small bedroom looked out on. The elevated train is gone. 
These maps were created because of the fear, or expectation even, that at least some of the buildings they depicted would be destroyed by fire. It makes me wonder what J.A. Phillips would make of his paper map of Fort Wayne surviving so long after the brick and mortar of the city had changed beyond recognition. Here's David Dice again. I suspect, or I would like to think, that a lot of the people in the production aspect of this sort of thought of it as this artisan endeavor where you were striving to make as good a product as you possibly could where you took pride in craftsmanship. I would like to think that if they could see us now, they would be thrilled that people have such adoration for these volumes. I think that would really warm their hearts, that they spent their careers working on objects that people now hold with such high esteem. That would be immensely satisfying, I would think. That's the way I would feel about it. That's how I'd feel about it, too. Thanks for listening. Artifactual is written and produced by me, Tobiah Black. Our producer is Will DePanier. Our executive producers are Tom Jennings and Ellen Farmer at 1895 Films. Fran from 17th Street Audio did the sound design and mixing for this episode. If you want to learn more about our documentaries, you can find us on Twitter at 1895films or at 1895films.com.